Welcome to the Rob Seco Field Ready Podcast with your host, Jim Robinson. Hello and welcome back to the Rob Seco Field Ready Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Robinson. In today's episode, we're going to talk about learning from your farm. Basically, different ways to test, investigate different values of inputs, and different practices you can use to learn the most on your farm. We're going to talk through some of the best practices that generate meaningful on-farm comparisons so that you can make the best decisions for the management practices on your own farm. I have with me today, Wayne Fithian, Rob Seco's agronomy manager. Welcome back, Wayne. Hi, Jim. Thank you for uh, having me back. Yeah, so I'm excited to talk through some of the things that... uh, we're going to go through today with on-farm research and learning from your own farm. Basically, in the farming community, a lot of modern-day statistics have been developed out of research on the farm and, and through agricultural practices in general. I was not aware of, but it turns out the analysis of variance is a direct uh, statistical method that was developed through farm research. Is that right? I wasn't aware of that either. Yeah. I, I certainly uh, had a lot of statistics in my background and I'm well acquainted with the analysis, of the, the ANOVA test, the, the ANOVA analysis test. of variation. Absolutely. So Wayne, can you tell us a little bit about what types of tests uh, that a farmer can do on his own farm and, and what he can evaluate, what he may not be able to? Well, f- first, if I could, Jim, I'd like to kind of talk about you as you think about things that you might want to test on your farm. The One of the things I want to keep in mind always when I look at on-farm data or things, on-farm comparisons, is that individual comparisons are like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. You know, if you look at one piece of a jigsaw puzzle, well, you see some color and you see some, maybe some profiles or maybe some leaves, but you really see the picture when you put a whole bunch of pieces of that jigsaw puzzle together. And so we got to think about our individual comparisons like pieces of a puzzle. Mm -hmm. It takes multiple pieces of that puzzle or multiple comparisons together to really understand what what the information you're collecting is telling you. Yeah, it takes uh, quite a few pieces and, and have to look at it as a whole before you can decide on anything. Yeah, for example, I mean, one of the one of the things that we, we typically do in terms of generating information on our own farm, kind of on evaluation of our inputs, is genetic strip trials, right? We compare mm-hmm. soybean varieties and we compare corn hybrids. And uh, kind of back to that analysis of variance, you know, from looking at strip trial data, I, I just know that on a really uniform farm, I'm going to have to see bigger differences than 10 bushel to believe them. Mm-hmm. And on a farm or in a plot that has some variation in it, some maybe the soil changed a little bit or the topography changed, or, or maybe a storm affected one part of the plot more than another, you got to look at uh, 20 bushels before you can believe the difference because that first 10 to 20 bushels is variation that's due to random error mm-hmm. in that ANOVA just... It, Differences that you can't attribute to the treatment you're trying to study versus true treatment. So I, I guess what I get really excited on genetic strip trials is is when I see a trend across 10 locations, then I know that hybrid's performing or that variety's performing better than the one I'm comparing it to because by the time I get to 10 locations, I've washed out that random error effect and I can really look at uh, differences that are true and Absol- predictable. Absolutely. Now, when you do a strip trial, you know, there, there are a lot of different practices you can do in doing a strip trial to look at, at uh, different genetics, different hybrids and varieties. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about you know, the best practices? Are, are four rows better than six rows? You know, how far for, uh, into the field should the strip trial go? That sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, what I like to do is to balance size 
with with kind of a minim, minimizing as much as I can the opportunities for variation. Mm-hmm. So you you want a big enough area that you can actually get a true representative sample of that product on that piece of ground that year. But you, you also don't want it to be so big that you spread the plot across such a big area that you, you no longer are comparing apples to apples when you go mm-hmm. from one side to the other. So, I mean, ideally, I like a six-row plot somewhere in the neighborhood of 700, 800 feet long. I think mm-hmm. I, I, uh, less than four rows isn't good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Twelve rows, they're just spread too far apart by the time you get to the seventh or eighth variety or hybrid, and you don't, you, you don't really have a good apples-to-apples comparison. So I like a six-row plot, a four-row plot, somewhere more than 500 feet, but less than, ideally less than 1,000. Absolutely. Yeah, and some of those uh, narrow row configurations, or so, some of those four row plots, you know, shorter hybrids may be at a, a slight disadvantage due to taller hybrids maybe shading them out. I know there's a lot of controversy on on how much that effect actually has, but in a four row plot, it's more likely to happen than a six eight, or an eight row plot. Yeah, and I think one of the ways that you can just kind of acknowledge that that's happening is when you walk across the front of a plot in July or August, and you can see that the the, the shorter hybrid next to the taller hybrid, that, that outside row is a little bit taller than the inside rows. And the first mm-hmm. row of that taller hybrid is a little bit shorter than the inside rows of that taller hybrid. So they're definitely interacting with each other. You know, and, and one of the things I really like that I see farmers doing is uh, splitting the planter to look at two mm-hmm. hybrids or two soybean varieties. And one, one of the things I really like about that is you go across the field, you get replications. And in, in statistics, we use replications to minimize the amount of, of error in treatment effect that's not due to what we're trying to study. So mm-hmm. when, when you get that split planner and you can check those two right next to each other, you know, six, eight times as you go across the field, each of those individual pairs uh, become a, a really nice puzzle You've got all those pieces put together, right? Mm-hmm. So you can see that picture with clarity. Absolutely. It definitely averages out any issues or any changes you have going across the field in that you're repeating each of the different products uh, from one into another by split planter. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, it's with the bulk center fill planters, it's probably easy to, easier to do two blocks. But because the blocks get separated so far across the field, that introduces field variation. So you, mm-hmm. you, you have to be a lot more careful about making that comparison. Just like you got to be really care, careful comparing how two products did in two different fields because the fields are different. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, they, the, they're not going to necessarily tell you the same story. Absolutely. So... Now, what if a farmer wanted to compare uh, different trait packages and, and to do some research to see is single mode of action corner or control better than, say, a Duracade, which is a, a dual mode of action trait stack? Yeah, I think trait package comparisons are a really nice way to uh, to evaluate the value of a trait on your farm. So uh, if it's ear feeding insects, I think you can you can do a a right next, you know, a paired kind of what we talked about earlier, split planter, you mm-hmm. know, because ear feeding insects are a little more uniform in the field uh, compared to some other insect pests. Corn rootworm, for example, you, you got to have wider strips because corn rootworm by its nature tends to be a little bit more pocketed in terms of severity. So you'll have areas that have really high pressure and areas that have moderate pressure as you walk down the row or as you walk across the field. So one of the things I like to see uh, with uh, with trait comparisons for corn rootworm is that we do, let's say, 24 rows mm-hmm. 
rather than uh, six rows. I think with ear feeding insects, you could compare six rows right next to six rows and get a really good idea of what that trait's giving you in terms of protection against those ear feeding insects. Now, herbicide traits, those are a little more difficult, right? <laughs> and then we definitely got to get into blocks. But, uh, you know, and another thing that we can uh, look at on the genetic side is seeding rate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of these planters nowadays, you can vary seeding rate from the cab as you plant. I remember, you know, when I started in agronomy, you had to go out and get behind the planter and you had to adjust the driver driven. It was quite a bit of effort to... Uh, to test seeding rate, but now you can, uh, with a lot of planters, test seeding rate on the go, and you can run some strips and uh, and vary. You know, let's compare twenty eight thousand here to thirty three thousand over here. Mm-hmm. I think one steer I would have on seeding rate trials is to make the jump big enough that you'll really see a difference. Most hybrids will compensate for a two three thousand plant difference pretty effectively. Yep, especially the hybrids that have have a are less responsive to population, you know, that can either double ear or make a bigger ear, put on more rows or make a bigger kernel. So any of those tendencies that allow a hybrid to really adapt to population uh, can can get in the way if you just vary by a couple of thousand plants. So again, vary it by four or 5,000 plants. And, and I like to compare three because mm-hmm. if you just compare two and you get a big difference, you don't really know where that difference is going to peak out or bottom out. So, yep. you know, I like to compare, let's say, late maybe uh, 28, 33, and 38, for mm-hmm. example, on a good high-yielding piece of ground. If it was a little more moderate yielding, maybe 23, 28, and 33. Yep. So basically, thousand seeds breaker. So basically varying your seeding rate by 10 to 15% per step in order to capture the biggest differences you can possibly see. Yeah, and, and again, if you can do that more than one time in the field— uh, and and then use those as replications, then that that gives you even better idea how your farm's responding and how the hybrids that you're picking are responding to seeding rate. Absolutely. So what about other inputs, things such as seed treatment, especially for soybeans? Yeah, I think uh, soybean seed treatments, uh, I th- what, what I would design is a really nice study, if, especially if I was worried about a specific disease, would be maybe a seed treatment by disease interaction comparison, where mm-hmm. maybe I'd look at a two varieties that had a varying response to the disease of interest, like sudden death syndrome, mm-hmm. and then with or without a fungicide package that addresses uh, sudden death syndrome, like you know a product like Bears Olivo, or uh, there's there's others on the market. But I think it'd be really uh, that'd be a really nice way to look at it because then you can learn not only what the seed treatment is doing for you mm-hmm. in terms of protecting against that disease, but also what variety tolerance, what kind of a role variety tolerance is playing in there? Can I get by by just selecting the variety that has the best tolerance to the disease? Mm-hmm. Am I better off planting something that doesn't have good tolerance and using a, a fungicide seed treatment, or do I want to use both of them together? I think that would be a really interesting study on the farm. And, and uh, But you've got to be a little bit careful when you play with seed treatments in soybeans, and as particularly with the insecticide components. Absolutely. Those bean leaf beetles do tend to fly from one plant to another. Yeah, and some <laughs> of the work uh, that, 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 that I've been involved with in the past, we found out that if you have a seed-applied insecticide in your soybean seed treatment and you have overwintering bean leaf beetles or, or uh, grasshopper, early nymph stages of grasshoppers, any kind of an insect that will move, that they're actually will will migrate in heavier numbers to the to the seed applied insecticide treated rows because there's not as much defoliation. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so you have to be careful about not making that check right on that split. And uh, some of the data we generated said that you needed to be at least 25 feet from the split in the control side or in the in 75 feet in, in no, other way around, 75 feet in the control side and 25 feet on the treated side. So you really need to be 100 feet dispro- disappropriately uh, positioned across that side-by-side line in order to get the best information. But that's when you have overwintering and, and mobile insects, uh, early season insects feeding on those beans. For sure. They'll definitely go to where the pasture is greener. Yeah. So when we look at uh, different methods of on-farm learning and, and that sort of thing, what kinds of things would you measure in the field? I mean, obviously there's yield, but what else would you be looking at as an outcome? Well, I, th- I think yeah, yield is, is a really important one. I always like to follow grain moisture because things like seeding rate and those can affect grain moisture content at harvest time. But yield is also that one that has the greatest source of of non-treatment related error. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, again, be careful when you try to interpret yield, especially if you don't have replications uh, uh, to compare over certain places or multiple places. But I think the other ones, are certainly any differences you might see in standability, uh, from a fungicide treatment that you've made a comparison on, maybe you left some check strips that didn't get an in-season fungicide and you want to compare standability or or you're looking at corn rootworm trait packages and you want to compare standability, that's a good thing to look at. So how many of them are, uh, you know, what percentage are lodged versus unlodged between my two treatments? Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly if you're doing a trait comparison package, you want to go in and look at what the disease or the insect pressure is behind that trait, right? So that you get a full learning of more than just the yield. And and like you said earlier, you don't necessarily want to go right at the line of where the transition between the treatments is or the trait packages are. You want to go 25 to 75 feet in on on either of the uh, traits, depending on if it's uh, soybeans. Especially on soybeans Mm -hmm. and uh, and over like the overwintering bean leaf beetle, but also on corn rootworm because Mm -hmm. of the pocketed nature of of, uh, how of the variability in rootworm pressure. Mm-hmm. You're feeding insects, I think you can be pretty close to that split, like corn earworm and western bean cutworm. You can usually be pretty, because they're a little more general in distribution. But the other thing I like to look at, Jim, is is what are the plants telling me? I mm-hmm. remember the first time I did nitrogen rate research on corn mm-hmm. in the field, and, and, uh, and especially some hybrids at Lower nitrogen rates, still enough nitrogen to optimize yield. I mean, mm-hmm. certainly we had higher rates of nitrogen on that didn't give us in some of these fields a, an economic response or a, or a positive yield return. But how much, you know, the, we saw yellowing during the later stages of, green fi- of grain field that would have made you think, oh, I needed more nitrogen here. Mm-hmm. And when we, when we harvested the plots, we were seeing that yellowing uh, even clear up into the ear zone on some hybrids by the time we got to the late dent, uh, late doe, early dent stage without affecting yield. So, so pay attention to what those plants are telling you so that the next time around you've, you've got that piece of information in your back pocket and, and uh, you don't get to kind of overreact to the symptoms of the plant and, and understand what the, what the plant's trying to tell you relative to the uh, return you're going to make on, for example, your nitrogen dollar. Right, for sure. There's definitely a genetic variability in, in a hybrid's ability to fire or, or its symptomology to showing firing. doesn't necessarily affect yield. That's a great observation. So you're always going to see yield differences, even if you have no changes in treatment, whether it's a change in genetics or a change in seed treatment or 
portfolio application fungicide. So what's an actually actually a real difference versus a not statistically difference uh, difference in yield? So I'll go back to that uh, earlier comment, Jim. On a on a really good uniform piece of ground, I, I want to I. I I got to see more than 10 bushels before I believe it. In fact, I'd probably say if, if I saw a 15 bushel difference that the real, the real difference is only maybe seven, five to seven, mm-hmm. right? Because there's just so much error in, in doing a non-replicated type, type comparison. Uh, that, and that's why split planners, you know, will tell you more about how that hybrid did and might do on that field next year mm-hmm. than a strip plot will. Now, if you, strip plots are great things, but you need to look at eight or 10 of them over a eight or 10 county area because the environment in that field will be different next year. Right. And those eight or 10 locations will give you a little bit better idea of how the environment's interacting. And uh, so, so, you know, I've always encouraged farmers who are involved in a yield club or a, maybe a young farmers group, you know, have everybody in the group go do the same trial. Mm-hmm. And then you can set down that fall and, and really get a good understanding of, of what everybody saw because those eight or 10 observations together are going to be more insightful mm-hmm. on what that input's doing for you than any individual subset from one of those farms. Absolutely, yeah. The, getting additional replications will reduce your error error in the ANOVAs that we've we've seen in the past, and uh, you know even in the students' t test, which was actually derived from from brewing beer. But uh, these uh, have to tell me about that a little bit more sometime. Absolutely, <laughs> Guinness Brewery. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, uh, by comparing with your neighbors and across a larger geography, uh, you can certainly. Uh, reduce the amount of error you see and gain more confidence in those differences in yield that you might observe. And so I think to summarize from what we've gone through so far, basically, if you're going to do a strip trial with different hybrids or varieties, uh, make sure you do at least four rows, probably less than 12. And you want to go at least 700 feet so that you can get a good look at the products, but not too much of a look that you introduce too much field variability. Split planter with two different products is always a good thing. The replication that you get from that uh, gives you a really good look at the products. And then comparing different trait packages or uh, seeding rates or uh, seed treatments, you want to make sure that you get enough of a look and enough spacing between looks to where you don't introdu- introduce different error between the interaction of the two treatments. Anything yeah, else you want right. to add? And, and I guess I'd add that, you know, one of the, one of the things that's always hard to do is leave that check strip. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you've decided you're going to put a fungicide on your corn at R1, it's hard to leave that area untreated. But boy, I, I'd, I'd encourage, I'd encourage check strips to uh, to be able to go back in and say, okay, so maybe in one or two or three places, certainly one, mm-hmm. two or three places where you didn't put the fungicide on, how did how did my corn perform there? Standability, yield. Other, you know, greenness in the fall versus areas where I did put it on. Certainly, if you have a disease, you probably ought to put it on everything unless you've got a really tolerant hybrid. But uh, but uh, if you're just putting it on for that uh, yield effect or that plant health effect, I like to see check strips. Absolutely. And using a check strip also allows you to determine what your ROI is. Did you actually pay for the application or not? Which is one of the biggest things that you can look at in doing this on this on farm research or this uh, learnings from your own farm. So with that, Wayton, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a great conversation, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. And remember to tune back in on the 1st and 15th every month. And until then, stay field ready. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Rob Seco Field Ready Podcast. Join us next time to be field ready.
a Parkville Media Production.